Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, and welcome. So students across the country have started an unprecedented school year. As debates rage nationwide over reopening schools, most local students, for at least the time being, are headed back to school online, though there are some private schools that opted for in-person instruction. What will this school year be like in the midst of a pandemic? Can in-person instruction be done safely right now? Can remote education replace traditional in-person instruction? And what does this all mean for school-aged children and their development? So today, we're gonna start our conversation with two education reporters who have been covering the impacts of COVID-19 on schools, both across the country and also here close to home. Valerie Strauss is a reporter at the Washington Post where she runs the Answer Sheet blog. Debbie Trong is an education reporter for WAMU the NPR affiliate in Washington, D.C., where she covers the Washington region, including Montgomery County and Prince George's County. Both of you, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Thanks for having us, Wes. Valerie, if it's okay, I want to start with you. And I want to say in in, uh, in disclosure, I've been a a friend and a fan of Valerie for a very long time. And so as we're having this conversation, I knew I wanted to include you into this. Can you give us an, an overview of how school districts across the country are approaching this school year, uh, and also the debate about reopening in-person schools. You know, this is we've we went to this process as early as the spring, knowing that we were heading into a global pandemic that we weren't sure how long this would last. So, as we're now getting ready to reopen, can you talk a little bit about how school districts are approaching this going into this next school year? What we have now is a, an absolute national mishmash of approaches to the starting of the new school year. Schools now have largely opened one way or the other, in-person or online. Many schools, districts have done hybrids where kids go to school a couple days a week and stay home a couple days a week. But despite all the desire to, to send all kids back to school this fall, many districts, including most of the largest urban districts in the country, realized they didn't have the resources and they couldn't put together a plan that was safe enough for everybody, so they've all started remotely. School district superintendents have been saying for months that they need hundreds of millions of dollars to get all the materials and make all the refittings in the schools that they need to fix ventilator systems, to get masks, to refigure desks, and they they didn't get it. Congress hasn't done anything since basically uh, the spring, and state and local budgets are being cut. So school districts are now right now facing the loss of millions of dollars. And there's kind of a a growing realization now that while the spring was difficult as an emergency, everybody ran home, that this year is going to be the most unusual year we've ever had in public education because this virus isn't going away. And we haven't figured out exactly how to resource schools on a broad scale. So it's one district by district by district by district. Some states are trying to help them. Some states are, are trying to force them to open when they don't want to, like in Florida. So it's, it's, it's a mess is what it is. Well, so, but that's a really important point because 
when we look at how we've thought about resource allocation during this period, we know we've had different tranches of supports and federal stimulus that has come in, uh, you know, due to COVID. And but there has not been one that has specifically been earmarked towards education, nor one that's been specifically earmarked towards supporting state and local governments uh, who can then think about the reopening of schools. And so how then are schools thinking about this, even just from an economic perspective where you are right, we're watching state budgets being hacked. But at the same time, we're watching the increased both need and the increased resource demand for education taking place. But the federal government is not in turn corresponding with the same level of focus. When I talk to superintendents, they, on some level, they throw up their hands and say, you know, it's it's an impossible task they're asking us to do. Working with more demands, more need, and in some cases, less resources. Uh, schools did get some millions of dollars, billions of dollars in uh, March when Congress passed the CARES Act. But since then, there really hasn't been any big infusion of money. Uh, that was only about $13 billion for K-12 it wasn't near enough. And believe it or not, some schools still haven't seen the money. The Secretary of Education was trying to have it distributed in a way that would benefit private schools over public schools. But just in the last few days after three judges told her she couldn't, she abandoned the rule. So the money situation is really dire. We see teachers, yet again, even those that are working at home, having to buy their own supplies, which is which is not unusual. I mean, it happens every year, but it's especially, um, you know, egregious this year when they have to, uh, when they're buying personal supplies in some places because they can't get enough from their schools. Debbie, I want to bring this also close to home with you, where, you know, last month, Governor Hogan announced that Maryland schools could move ahead with in-person instruction. What is the metric that he is using or was using to decide if that if it's safe to reopen, and particularly on a statewide level. Last month, Governor Hogan had said that several school systems in Maryland had put forth plans to bring students back for some level of in-person instruction. That doesn't mean that all students would be coming back. It means that some students may be coming back in small groups, particularly students who need extra help. Uh, like those who are English learners or who have special needs and maybe require more intensive instruction. He based this on two metrics that the health secretary put forward, and it has to do with the number of active cases in a county and the rate of infection. And and so looking at that and getting that guidance from the, uh, you know, from the health department. And I know that actually caused an interesting, uh, you know, an, an interesting back and forth, particularly Montgomery County, about where Montgomery County was, was talking about whether or not they could reopen. And then it was actually the health department that stepped in and said, well, if DOE is not going to have authority over independent schools, then we as the health department do. And it caused a very, uh, a, a very interesting back and forth between the governor and also uh, Montgomery County health departments. But considering that and considering that dynamic, what are you hearing from teachers and students and administrators and parents about how the school year is rolling out so far? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, teachers, parents, students will agree that everyone wants students back in classrooms. But here in the D.C. region, teachers and and teachers unions were pretty adamant that they didn't feel that it was safe for for students and teachers to return to classrooms. They raised a lot of, I think, valid concerns about 
um, air ventilation systems in older school buildings and really sort of the the practical aspect of having students socially distance for an entire school day um, or to, to wear, you know, face masks for hours on end. Um, you know, as the school year starts, I think a lot of teachers are um, a lot more optimistic than they were in the spring. In the spring, we were all sort of scrambling to try to make sense of this new landscape. Now, you know, given the, the time of the summer, teachers have had more time to develop you know, online specific curriculum and, and launch with that, you know, but I've, I've still heard some concerns over the availability of things like digital devices um, and the ability for, for schools to reach uh, particularly really vulnerable students. For example, in DC public schools, um, thousands of, of students told the school district that, you know, they needed digital devices for the start of the school year. In most cases, the school system was able to provide a tablet or a laptop to students. But anecdotally, I've also heard of some schools that ran out of devices before the school year started. Um, and, you know, I was at a school yesterday um, and, you know, I a, a student had brought her tablet in and said that she was having issues logging on and hadn't been able to get into her classes for, for about a week. Mm. And I, I mean, I think about I mean, hearing, and that's the thing, hearing a story like that is not just, it's not just breathtaking. It's a story that is being repeated and heard all throughout the state and all throughout the country. I mean, and, 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 and Valerie, I, I want to bring this back to you because, you know, you talked about kind of the, the how disparate, how, how different the country is. And so we're making education policy for Washington state is going to be different from making education policy for Mississippi. Uh, and also it's about even, it's both about geography and it's also about ages. So like, how does virtual instruction look like and what does it look like in practice for students of different ages? What is online education for a first grader versus a sixth grader versus a high school senior? That's a really good question. Uh, the answer is that it all depends. There isn't any monolithic first grade look. It can look uh, different in one school, actually, than another, depending on how the teachers have, have decided to uh, put together the program. Some schools are doing live classes where students of all ages have to be in school, meaning they have to be at their desk with their laptop if they're home and um, or wherever they are. They have to have the cameras trained on their face. There are different rules uh, by district. We were, I was looking at those yesterday, all the different kind of virtual instruction rules that different districts have. Some of them are um, very specific. For example, you can't take, um, you can't turn your face away from the teacher unless you have permission. You have to get permission to go to the bathroom. <laughs> You can't have anything that has doesn't have something to do uh, with learning in the front in the picture that the teacher sees of you. There's uh, you, you have to wear certain things. So there, there's very specific rules. But um, then they also have pre-recorded lessons that students can do in their own time. So there's a mix of it. Some districts have very little to no live classes because they have put together the program. Some, some districts have a lot of live classes. Some districts have platforms that are easy to get onto. Some districts have 
practically non-functioning platforms. There are, as Debbie noted, millions of kids who still don't have uh, laptops, still don't have access to internet. And uh, sadly, uh, it, uh, it is the most vulnerable kids who are getting the short end of this as happened before the pandemic. It's, it's potentially even worse now. So Debbie, I want to, I want to give you the, the, the final word on this. And, you know, I think one thing that also has been uh, terribly exposed is the fact that our schools are not just the place where students go and get credentials or, or, or even educational frameworks, you know, that our schools are the largest food provider for our children around the country, that our schools are the largest mental health provider for our children around the country, that our schools is a, are the largest childcare provider for families across the country, that teachers have a unique role where their job isn't just to educate, but also if there are examples of everything from abuse or trauma that's existing inside the household, you know, our, our teachers oftentimes are the frontline detectors of these items. And so our schools who have already taken on a major, already have uh, an outsized role in the nurturing and the success of our nation are now being asked to do that much more. How do you feel that we are going to adjust and adapt in this new climate, in this new world, considering all those other things that schools have to take on that we also now have added this new dynamic of being able to try to conduct it virtually and be able to try to conduct it in ways and with tools that for many of our families, teachers, and administrators uh, are going to be new and have to have to adjust to that to that new style as well. You know, I think above all, given the amount of time students have been out of school, I think that oh, I hope that people walk away with a deeper appreciation for everything that teachers in schools do do. It's, it's not an easy task to maintain a classroom of, of 30 students. And I think, you know, parents now who are trying to do distance learning from home and work simultaneously are, are really coming to that. We're also seeing that, you know, students are coming into these virtual classes with a lot more anxiety and stress and trauma than they normally would, given the, the pandemic and everything that else that's going on in the world, including, you know, the protests for racial justice that happened over the summer. So in addition to having to provide meals, provide um, instruction, things that schools have also always done, you know, teachers and, and school workers, counselors are also really tasked with the responsibility to, to make sure that students are, you know, mentally okay. And they have to assess that before even getting down to actual learning. So yeah, no, we're, we're definitely asking a lot of, of schools in this moment. You listen to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR and I'm Wes Moore. Today we've been talking about how COVID-19 is shaping education during a school year like no other. And I've had the absolute pleasure of talking with Valerie Strauss and Debbie Trong. Valerie is a reporter at the Washington Post where she runs the Answer Sheet blog. Debbie is an education reporter for WAMU, the NPR affiliate in Washington, D.C., where she covers the Washington region, including Montgomery and Prince George's County. Thank you both for joining us today, and thank you for continuing to not just shed light, but also shed direction at a time when that's what our society needs most. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Wes. Thanks, Wes. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away, because when we come back, we'll zoom in on Baltimore and hear about how teachers, students, and parents in the city are dealing with education in a pandemic. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the monthly show where we explore some of the most pressing issues in Baltimore City and where we shift the question from what's wrong to what's next. This month on the show, we're talking about how COVID-19 and the pandemic is shaping education in Baltimore and for areas around the region and the country. Now I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Kalila Harris, Managing Director of K-12 Education at the Center for American Progress, about how local teachers, students, and parents are doing this school year and how people are responding to the new world of virtual education. Dr. Harris, it is great to talk to you as always, and welcome to the show. Thank you, my pleasure. And so, so first I do want to start, uh, I, I want to start you know, with hometown, I want to start local, where you know, we're looking at Baltimore City Public School students are starting off the year online. What were your initial thoughts when you first heard that that was the decision, that Baltimore School was going to start off online, and, and how do you think that the rollout of virtual education has started so far in Baltimore? Well, what I know is that educators have been doing a yeoman's job to prepare during the summer. Principals have been doing um, all kinds of outreach to make sure that any children that we haven't seen since the spring or families who have uh, multiple children in their schools that they're taking care of. I think the school district did a good job of engaging families during the summer, um, trying to hear their voices. Ultimately, the decision to open online was the right one um, because we, you know, as we see right now in Baltimore and in Maryland, our incidence cases are rising per 100,000. So I think we're above 6% according to Johns Hopkins. The rollout is as good as it could be when you have families who do not have access to uh, technology, whether it's because of Wi-Fi or um, not enough computers for their children. Uh, we now see that the city is opening learning centers for families who absolutely need to be able to work. Um, and I think those should have been some of the plans that were considered very early in the summer. I think they were late to the game on that. But having them now is a real testament to understanding multiple families have different needs and we want to make sure all students have access to learning. So I think everybody's, you know, getting their feet under them. It's the first week of school. Um, you know, what we want to see is families given grace, students who are given grace, educators who are given grace, and, uh, you know, thinking through continuously innovations on how to bring young people together and not have them solely on um, a virtual platform so that they can build the relationships that are necessary to uh, childhood development. But I think the city did a decent job in rolling out. And what we want to see now is continued in innovation, continued engagement of parents and families. It's, but it's, it's, you know, it's remarkable when you think about what the ask has been for teachers, for principals, for counselors throughout this entire period, for superintendents throughout this entire period. I mean, we, we went through, we had this uh, essentially an emergency shutdown of facilities uh, that took place inside the spring, but telling people, but the education needs to continue. Right. Telling people that students still need to graduate, students still need to complete their coursework. But it was very it wasn't like there was a, a four month rollout for that. This was very much a light switch process. And so when you think about that, you know, what kind of lessons 
did the teachers and the administrators and the faculty and the and the and the, and the superintendents what were the, some of the lessons that they learned from last year's virtual education and particularly how how swift it happened that are were also shaping how they're preparing for the fall and how they're preparing for the for this reopening well the first lesson is that the inequities that we see and who has access to what opportunities in education were exacerbated and the idea that we could keep going along to get along with incremental change over decades instead of rapidly doing what we need to do to make sure all children have access to uh, uh, quality education was glaring. Uh, we also know that educators can't rest in a very traditional style and model of teaching. Uh, and, and frankly, we are in a 21st century world and rapidly approaching 22nd century. And there really isn't a reason that educators didn't have more um, professional development as it related to being able to um, uh, transition between an in-person and a virtual platform. We know that families also need support for being able to work. And the disparities we've seen between the most affluent and families with the lowest resources, again, is glaring to the extent that some families had no issues transitioning and other families where they are the frontline workers, right? There are CNAs, there are janitors in hospitals, there are police, fire people, EMT, our doctors. Um, they are people who work in retail that we need, like grocery stores and pharmacies. And so, you know, we learn the lesson of we can't be so narrowly focused on what school is, right? It doesn't have to just be the four walls of a building. It really does need to incorporate the community. And frankly, you know, people have been paying short shift to the concept of community schools. When you have community schools, the schools are just a hub for the broader community. And it becomes a situation where if the building cannot be used, the community was already involved in students' education and you can have more of a seamless connection. Another thing that, that was also, I, I think, highlighted and, and exacerbated and, and is now completely undeniable is the role that race has played in all of this. Um, you know, even when people say that COVID-19 was a, you know, was was an equal opportunity hit, that's just not true. And the data doesn't back that up. Uh, that when you look at, you know, when you look at our communities and you look at black communities, that uh, the disproportionate rate, not just of infection and death, uh, you look at the disproportionate economic impact of COVID-19. And also we're seeing how even the classroom is no different. Can you talk a little bit about how people, how the conversation about the role that race plays in all this has been shifted due to this new dynamic that COVID-19 is introducing to the classroom? Certainly, I mean, we see the dual pandemics of both COVID-19 and um, intensified racial unrest. And so how we think about uh, getting back on screens when you have families who are grappling with their positionality in this country, um, when they have families or other community members who say to them, all lives matter, but they recognize for themselves and the people in their homes uh, that Black lives don't matter to so many people because we're not treated with the same level of dignity and respect. Um, and so when it comes to race, we also see again where we had the $23 billion gap uh, between 
expenditures in predominantly white schools versus predominantly uh, uh, schools of black, indigenous, and other non-black people of color, um, you, you understand why there are uh, large swaths of communities that did not have access to internet, that did not have access to proper equipment, whose families are doing jobs that keep the country running, um, that keep building the country like they've been doing since enslavement, um, uh, but they don't have the things that they need, including access to health care, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Right? Those families feel like they must go to work because um, a health care in- incidence could cripple their family for uh, decades to come. It, th- that's untenable, and, and, and that is, in fact, un-American based on the America we say we are. Mm-hmm. So the absence of health care as a right for all families, the absence of adequate um, uh, family leave, the absence of even a conversation about how do we support families who believe they need to work or by the nature of their work requires them to have care for their children. How do we support them having that care while we don't use schools as a daycare center or a fail safe? Because those families, educators, children, Um, parents, community members also need to be safe. So the idea that we thrust children and educators back in, and we now hear that the president of the United States was downplaying the virus, um, that the president of the United States has has said he is not that interested in understanding um, how race impacts America. We see that there are things that need to happen on the ground and between our neighbors that may not be happening from the leadership of this country. You helped start uh, hashtag WeBuildEDU to make sure that the voices of educators of color are heard when when designing public education policies during COVID. Could you tell us more about what that is and, and let us know what you're hearing from teachers of color locally, around the country, and where do they think education should be heading? Absolutely. So the We Build EDU campaign is a partnership between Center for American Progress and EduColor. EduColor is a a national collaborative that organizes around socially just education and supporting Black, Indigenous, and other non-Black people of color um, in the classroom and in community. WeBuildEDU.org is a place where anyone can go and do two things. They can either share their story Um, And we are asking for the stories of, again, Black, Indigenous, and other non-Black people of color who are educators. And we define educators as every adult who engages with young people from the time they cross the um, street with a crossing guard um, to get on the school bus with a school bus driver, to go in in the morning to have breakfast with the cafeteria worker or be greeted by an office manager, to their teachers, administrators, counselors, all of those paraeducators, one-on-one aides. We're asking all of those folks to tell the story of what happened when school ended, what happened in their own communities and with students who looked like them, how the racial unrest also informed what they were doing in the classroom in the spring and how they thought about planning for the fall. Um, And then what should schools look like to serve all children to make sure all children have a quality education. And we're asking them not to tell us about PPE and installation of uh, plexiglass shields or hand sanitizer. We're asking them the question that they should have been asked before, and that is what should school structure look like 
to provide quality education for all children? Who should be involved? How do we engage family members? Uh, many of these people themselves have children and they want their children to have high quality education as much as their students. So asking questions of people who reflect the population of the majority of public school students, which are black indigenous and other non-black people of color, seems critical at this point. The second thing we ask are for people who aren't educators to boost the stories of the educators on the site and also to fill out a call to action to their elected officials to come to the site and listen to their constituents. We have educators talking about the implications of supporting students who either, if they're in an affluent community, are really facing a challenge between, you know, what access they have to resources versus their white counterparts or other people in their community, but also in communities where there are low resources, a number of the educators are saying that they are doubling and tripling down on their commitment to racial justice, on their commitment to making sure children have access to quality schools. They are expanding the way they think about education um, and where they can point their children to access the information and the understanding they need of the world around them so they can be productive citizens. You are listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, and I'm Wes Moore. And today we're talking about how COVID-19 is shaping education during this new school year. And I've had the absolute pleasure of talking with Dr. Kalila Harris, who is the Managing Director of K-12 Education at the Center for American Progress. Dr. Harris, bless you and thank you for how you continue to lead us, not just in this moment, but also before and then beyond. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, always a pleasure. We have to take a brief break, but please do not go away because when we come back, We'll hear more about how schools are trying to break down barriers between students and the technology they need for online education. Plus, we'll talk about the implications that both the health pandemic and the economic crisis could have on Maryland students for years to come. All that when we come back to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. This month on the show, it's education and COVID-19. As the country deals with the uncertainties brought about by coronavirus, the one thing is certain. This is a school year like no other. As students head back to school, both online and in person, barriers persist like access to technology and high-speed broadband internet. How are people trying to close that digital divide? We're talking about that and much more with Joe Francavilia. Joe is the executive director of Strong Schools Maryland and Transparency. He's not only a friend, but also was the leader behind the current project, which I, uh, which I supported. But, uh, but Joe, thank you so much for all your support and for your leadership and for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Wes. Joe, I just want to start with a question about how you're feeling generally about Maryland schools at the start of the 2020-2021 school year. I think that's a great question. And to be honest, my feelings are, are mixed. Uh, we have a state that's full of incredibly dedicated educators, parents that want what's best for their kids, students who will do whatever they need to get their education. Uh, but we're in a situation where there's just no good choices to be made. Uh, and balancing public health and access to education is incredibly difficult. 
And unfortunately, all of our superintendents have kind of been left to themselves. And so we have 24 little islands all operating differently because we've really not had state leadership. Um, and that's a huge issue. And so when we look around the state, not just in Baltimore City, but around the entire state, we just see different rules. We see different expectations. And it's creating a lot of confusion for all of the parents and students and educators who just want to make sure that they can provide the best education possible for every student, but do it in a safe way. And so I think it's important that th this debate gets reframed a little bit because right now it's very much virtual versus in-person. And that's the wrong debate. There is not one person in this state uh, that really wants only virtual learning and thinks that's the solution from here on out. What educators and parents and students want is a safe environment. And right now, because of the lack of leadership at the federal government, at the state government, our schools just haven't been able to meet the guidelines needed for public health because the resources simply aren't there, the guidance isn't there, and the expectations around how to do it safely just don't exist in a way that's uniform across the state. And that's really uh, leaving kids behind, especially kids uh, that have already experienced summer learning loss or kids that uh, you know, were out of school for three months starting in March. And so my feelings are really mixed. Um, there's a lot of people doing really good work fighting to you know, fix the solutions. But right now, we're having to make, you know, choices that just are which of the these two bad choices do we want to go with? So, so Joe, I want to dig into that a little bit more because, you know, you are a person who you have devoted your entire life to education and education equality. Uh, and the thing is, though, is that we've known since March that we were in the midst of a global pandemic that it was going to take. And again, st we still aren't sure of the final answer, but it was going to take X amount of months to be able to find a vaccine, X amount of months for people to have therapeutics. And so we knew in the spring that this was potentially going to be a challenge in the fall. How do people, why are people feeling so flat footed right now, considering the fact that we had known really for now six months that this was potentially going to be an issue when it came to, when it came to reopening schools in the fall? You know, that's a great question, and I think it's a combination of issues that happened at the federal level and the state level. If you looked early on, I think there was a lot of conversation around how do we make sure that, you know, we can provide schooling in the fall? What does that look like? Um, and then politics got in the way, and at the federal level, it became a political issue. Either you send your kids back or you don't, and it became a, you know, President Trump very aggressively pushed kids must be in school, even though we now learn that he knew that was a bad idea. Um, and he was secretly uh, or behind the scenes saying, you know, kids can get COVID as well. Um, and so it became a political issue. And unfortunately, it was a, not a political issue of go back or don't go back. It was go back and risk your child and your teacher and your support staff's life or do the safe option. And so that became a really big issue. And then unfortunately, in the state of Maryland, uh, we, you know, created a lot of plans over the summer. A lot of work groups happened. A lot of people were doing, um, thinking around this, putting out different ideas, letters, conversations. Um, and it became pretty evident that virtual schooling was the way it was going to start. A lot of districts announced it early enough where parents can make the adjustment. And then the state, 10 days before the start of the school year, stepped in and made announcements that, threw everything into chaos, saying schools should be open, kids should be in person, 
and try to incentivize it with $10 million, not $10 million per school district or per school, 10 million for the entire state, which equates to about $11 per student. Um, and that's just not how we should do policy in Maryland. We need to do what is best for kids and public health and the safety of our educators, our families and our students. And how do we do that in the best way? And unfortunately, it wasn't a collaborative process. It was a top-down uh, mandate or edict that just couldn't be met. And so I, I think that's a really good point is that, unfortunately, politics got in the way and not the politics where there's two sides to every story. This was politics of safety versus not safety. Um, and that's not an okay way to divide this conversation. And unfortunately, some of our leaders that have national ambitions or some of our national leaders who have uh, re-election ambitions just aren't playing it straight with the public. You know, you were the director of in instructional technology at Baltimore's Kipojima Village Academy. So even, even there, you were responsible for connecting students with Chromebooks. What did you learn from, about, from that experience that the role technology plays in students' education during that time? And how has that then played into how you're thinking about the role that technology is going to play in all of our students' education statewide uh, in this moment? Yeah, that's a really great point. So about four or five years ago, um, I was the director of instructional technology at Kipujima, and uh, we were ahead of the curve with Chromebooks, and we had a visionary leader there, um, Mike Lucas, who said, we're going to go one-to-one, -one. and this was before the, the laptop and Chromebook craze. Um, and I built out this program for 720 students, and every student had a Chromebook, but we were in school every single day from seven to three. And what we learned from that process isn't you can't hand out a computer and set it and forget it. Or you can't hand out a computer, say, go to this website, learn this skill. It takes uh, teacher instruction. It takes deliberate planning to really make sure that the device is there to assist learning and not become the teacher. And unfortunately, I think a lot of folks around the state might think that you hand a student a computer, they go to Khan Academy, and now they're experts at eighth grade math. And that's not how it works. And we also have to have the conversation that just because our students are digital natives, you know, they grew up with iPhones and laptops and tablets as the norm, that doesn't mean digital literacy is where it needs to be. Students, just like any other person, need to learn the skills with laptops, with phones, with tablets. You can't hand something out and expect overnight that it's gonna solve the problem. And so, again, while districts are doing the best they can with virtual learning because this is a very hard circumstance, there hasn't been the discussion at the state level that instruction with technology requires intense teacher support. And you can't do that from a distance in the same way that you can do it when you're in a classroom. And so everyone's push to want kids in a classroom is the right idea, but you have to do it safely. And that's where a lot of people are falling down. And so... Too many people are confusing this idea of digital natives with digital literacy, and that's a problem. Schools are a microcosm of our society, right? Where, where the places that have actually done it pretty successfully are also places where society has found a way to break a curve. What we're talking about now is essentially having this conversation where in the U.S. we're still watching exploding COVID rates. And so that's a different dynamic than even from what we've seen from even some of our international partners about how to have that conversation about the balance between in-person versus virtual, but knowing that schools are a microcosm of how our large society is doing in terms of dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point is 
same thing with our economy. You can't restart an economy until you have COVID under control. And unfortunately, right now, too many people in leadership positions around uh, this country are choosing to say this disease, this pandemic, you know, we just have to live with it. Well, it, it just is what it is. And that's not an acceptable way to think about it. There are countless nations who have been able to get this under control and it takes sacrifice. And unfortunately, we haven't been asked to sacrifice in the same way. Um, a lot of business owners have been asked to sacrifice. A lot of folks around the state have sacrificed. But we've lost this collective sense of sacrifice in the state and the nation to do what we need to do collectively to make sure that we can prosper in the long term. And that's really how we're thinking about education in the long term as well, is we need to do things collectively to make sure when we come back in hopefully 10 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever it is, we're going to need to do things in the short term to catch kids up. But it's not just about coming back and catching kids up. It's about what type of schools do we want for the next 20 years? And that's the important conversation that we need to be having as well. And fortunately, Maryland had that conversation, but our governor stepped in and vetoed it and then has proposed $200 million in cuts to public education next year, as well as one thing that blew my mind was uh, the governor proposed $21 million cut on June 26th to the Healthy School Facilities Fund, whose job is literally in the name to make our school facilities healthy to be in. So, so let's actually let's let's delve a little bit into that right now because early this year you are right you know in in light of the economic crisis Governor Larry Hogan vetoed the blueprint for Maryland's future which you were which you were leading up uh, and that would have changed education in the state for for years to come especially considering in, in light of where we are right now how significant was that veto and how have education advocates responded in turn. So that veto was incredibly uh, upsetting. Now, Governor Hogan had projected he was not a fan of it for a while, um, but we thought, you know, cooler heads might prevail and investing in the future of our state and our economy might, you know, tip and allow him to sign the, the law. Unfortunately, he did veto it on May 7th. And this legislation, again, wasn't about the next 10 or 20 weeks. It was about the next 10 and 20 years. And it was a redesign of what we believe about our schools in Maryland and how to make them world-class. And it really did target every jurisdiction. And a lot of what was in it will help with the recovery, but there's also a ton in it that's gonna create a strong system moving forward. For instance, we're gonna expand early childhood education for three and four-year-olds. We're gonna recruit diverse teachers because one thing we know that when our students are incredibly diverse and our state is diversifying, but our teacher force is not diversifying at the same rate. And when students have teachers that look like them, they learn and can connect in a different way. And that's incredibly important that our state recruit and retain particularly black and brown teachers and black male teachers who are uh, too small a percentage of our teaching force and are not retained at the rates we need to retain them, uh, which is incredibly important. We also have community schools, and that would be a massive expansion under the blueprint. And community schools have been on the front lines of responding to COVID. They've been providing food banks. They've been providing meal sites. They've been providing connection to resources. They've been doing contact tracing. They've been doing everything that we need. Um, and, you know, there was millions of dollars for community schools in this piece of legislation. There was also money for special education and English language learners and students considered to be uh, from low-income families. And that money is so necessary. We've been underfunding those populations by hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and that's gonna to be totally 
uh, important going forward to make sure that all students get what we need. And then one thing I do want to point out, uh, because no piece of legislation is perfect, and we always need to continue to update it and, and make it better. But we need to do better in the state supporting all of our students, but particularly our black and brown students. And we know that race is a factor. We can't simply make a proxy for race and say, okay, any student in poverty, therefore that covers X amount of students. We know that there's learning gaps between white and black students in the state, that when you control for income, there's actually a larger gap on algebra tests between high income black and white students than there is between low income black and white students. And so people who say it's not about race, it's simply about uh, economic factors, are missing an entire field of this conversation. And so there has to be a push to reframe this conversation as well and make sure that race is a central component of the conversation moving forward. Uh, I've been speaking with, uh, with Joe Francavillia, who's the executive director for Strong Schools Maryland. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on Future City, and thank you for your consistent leadership on the most pressing issues of our time. So thank you so much. Wes, thanks so much for having me. And thank you to all the educators and superintendents and families and students out there who are doing the best in this bad situation. I want to thank all of our guests on the show today. Valerie Strauss, Debbie Trong, Dr. Kalila Harris, and Joe Francavilia. But before we close out, I just want to leave with a few comments. Earlier in the spring, without warning and without preparation, our schools were forced to pivot in an unprecedented way with students and teachers being in class one day and their school buildings being shut down the next. Preparation for proms and spring breaks immediately turned to quarantines and social distancing instructions. We can never thank our educators, administrators, counselors, school leaders enough for helping us all navigate this while also worrying about and caring for their own safety and the safety of their loved ones. The debt of gratitude we owe to our teachers is immeasurable. But the debt of gratitude must also be more than just words of thanks. We opened this fall knowing that for at least six months, the complications of this school year would be real, but we have not put together the proper funding or support for our teachers. We have not used this moment to rethink our classroom framework and to not only ensure the educational divide doesn't get bigger, but restructure them so that we could actually make them smaller. We still have children without consistent Wi-Fi or their own personal devices. We still have teachers who have not received the proper technology nor training to transition to a virtual environment. We still have not received the financial support necessary from the federal government to ensure that our students in the most vulnerable situations do not have to continue to be the main recipients of the strain of inequity. I am grateful that my children's school has performed so admirably during this time and that they have the resources and the family support system, led by my remarkable wife, that has ensured that our kids won't miss a beat. I'm grateful and I'm lucky, but luck should not be a prerequisite. Luck should not be something that we have to rely on to make sure that the educational implications of this crisis don't become catastrophic. Our ability to plan and prevent, our ability to push and insist, our ability to make sure that every tool that some kids have should be the standard for the tools that all kids have. Our remarkable educators deserve that. Our remarkable administrators deserve that. Our hardworking parents deserve that. Our beautiful children deserve that. Our future city deserves that.
Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.